All around the world, people are floundering. There's something missing, something more that they just can't grasp. Do you feel it too? Welcome to the Higher Purpose Podcast. Every week, host Kevin Monroe will help you navigate to your true north and flourish in faith, business, and life. You found us for a reason. Stay tuned to find out why. This is episode 11 of the Higher Purpose Podcast. I am so glad you're sharing part of your day with me, your host, Kevin Monroe. It's truly an honor to have you listening in. You're joining us in a four-part mini-series focusing on purpose at work. This is the fourth and final installment in that series. So if you've not yet heard the other three, go back and pick them up. Remember, they're free. Today's going to be fun. We're talking with Joe Pine, officially B. Joseph Pine. He's the co-founder of Strategic Horizons, and he's the author of several books, one in particular that's considered a must-read in the business world, especially for those focusing on client or customer experience. The name of that book is The Experience Economy, and it's one he co-wrote with Jim Gilmore. Let's jump in with Joe. Well, it's my privilege to welcome B. Joseph Pine, really known as Joe Pine, to the Higher Purpose Podcast. Welcome, Joe. We're delighted to have you. Thanks, Kevin. Pleasure to be here. Hey, Joe, what's something that's not in your official bio or on the website that would let (laughs) listeners know a little more about you? Uh, I'm a diehard uh, New York Yankees fan, Los Angeles Lakers, and Green Bay Packers. I moved around a lot as a kid. I was going to say, that's an interesting interesting mix there. Uh, Which are you most excited about? Of those three? Yeah. Oh, the Yankees, absolutely. Okay. Uh, My first love, I lived in New Jersey in the 60s, became a Yankees fan, have kept that with me in the, the, you know, five or more different states I've lived in uh, since then. Uh, They're coming to uh, Minnesota next week. Uh, so I, uh, my wife and I are going to one of the games with our, our daughter and son-in-law. Fabulous. So, Joe, here we are. We're on the Higher Purpose podcast. How do you describe your purpose? My purpose is to figure out what is going on in the world of business and then develop frameworks that first describe what's happening and then prescribe what companies can do about it. And then I write about it. I, I speak. I teach. I uh, consult around the world. Okay, and I've heard some people refer to you as a futurist, <laughs> but you don't refer to yourself as a futurist. Help us understand the, the, the distinction there for, for you. Yeah, I, I am not a futurist. I don't tell you what's going to happen. I tell you what's already happening, but you don't yet see it. Okay. <laughs> what keeps people from seeing it? Well, they have their own uh, uh, worldview. They have their own mindset. They have their own way of seeing things. And in fact, you know, the, the tagline we have on the, the back of our business cards, right? It says, helping executives see the world differently. Mm. That's what we do. So, and, and, and what I love doing is developing a framework with exemplars that, that the reaction you have is, oh, of course, <laughs> right? That's what I want. I want people to see that. They, ha- they didn't see it before, even though it's all around them, but I want them to see it in a way that they go, yes, of course. And that means that, that they, they, they ascend to the same proposition of what's going on, and therefore they have to think about, okay, what am I going to do about it? 
Well, the first book I read of yours, it's not the first one you wrote, but the first one I found and read was The Experience Economy. And that certainly had that effect on me as I'm reading this. It's kind of like, okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little late to the party because the book was written in 99. You know, and I read it three or four years ago, so I was really late to the party. But you were describing what I was experiencing. So for people that are listening that may not have yet read the book or may not be that familiar with the experience economy, I'm sure they've encountered it. Is there a thumbnail you can use to describe it? Sure. Well, well, what's going on, big picture, is that we've gone from an agrarian economy based off commodities. With the Industrial Revolution, we shifted to an industrial economy based off of goods, right? The physical, tangible things we touch and feel. In the latter half of the 20th century, we shifted into a service economy where it became the predominant economic offering, where services are built out of goods, goods are made from commodities. Well, now what's going on is we've shifted into an experience economy, and an economy where experiences are becoming the predominant economic offering. What consumers are looking for, what businesses need to do to create value is to stage experiences for them. Okay. And what's a, a prime example of an experience you've had staged for you in the last week from a company? <laughs> well, the uh, prime example is someplace I go often, particularly when I travel. But uh, when I met, so when somebody asked to uh, meet with me uh, late last week, I said, okay, let's go to Starbucks. Okay. And, uh, and uh, I, I, I love Starbucks. It's a pure exemplar of the experience economy. It's, Starbucks was originally a coffee manufacturer. Mm-hmm. They take commodities, beans that are worth two or three cents per cup, and they turn into something of two orders of magnitude more value, worth three, four, five dollars per cup, because they created a coffee drinking experience, a place where people come in, spend time, enjoy that cup of coffee made just for them. And I don't even drink coffee. I only ever drink tea. But but uh, I love Starbucks. My standard order is a venti non-fat six pump, no water, chai, extra hot. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that is a prime example of an ex- the experience economy for somebody that's scratching their head and says, what are you talking about? Right, absolutely. We, 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 op- yeah, we opened the book with it. You know, as a first example. And, I, and it's basically an example I give in every presentation I do because around the world, even if they've never been to a Starbucks, they, everybody that I would talk to has heard of it. They get it. Okay. Now, before the experience economy, you wrote mass customization. You followed the experience economy with? Authenticity, Authenticity. the next book. Yep. And then the one after that? Infinite possibility, creating customer value on the digital frontier. Okay. Do any of those books map a progression that we see happening in the world of business? Yeah, absolutely. They, they, although one of them, the last one sort of like takes a step backward. But, you know, I, I, I talk about it, it's like Marvel talks about its cinematic universe. Mm-hmm. Right, I have this intellectual multiverse, right? So you know, each of these books and more I'm working on constitute a different galaxy in there, but in fact, they, they, they do relate. Uh, so the DNA of it all is mass customization. Mass customization, I discovered when I worked for IBM in the late 80s, when I went to MIT, got my master's degree, I studied it, turned my thesis into my first book, and it's all about efficiently serving customers uniquely. Now, how do you give everybody exactly what they want but do it at a price you're willing to pay. That's what mass customization is. Mm-hmm. And then, go ahead. And, okay. And then, so when, after I left IBM, I discovered that, you know, that, that I often said that mass customization automatically turns a good into a service. Mm-hmm. 
If you look at the classic economic distinctions, goods are standardized. Services are customized just for the individual person. Goods are inventoried after production, but services are delivered on demand when the customer says this is what they want. And goods are tangible and services intangible, but part and parcel of mass customization is the intangible service of helping customers figure out what it is that they want. And when somebody asked me, well, then what, what does mass customization turn a service into? I shot back that mass customization automatically turns a service into an experience. And like, whoa, that sounds good. Hold on a second. I got to write that down, right? That was actually, you talk about 99. That was late 1993. Okay. You know, when that happened. And like, like you uh, and like so many other people, they tell me, is that once I had that in my head, then I began to see experiences everywhere, right? Then you see it. Uh, and that led into, into uh, writing and working on the experience account. Now, obviously, there's some companies that are, are kind of thriving in the experience economy, and there are others that are floundering. Right. What, what's the difference? And, and what, le- what causes some to thrive and others to flounder? Number one reason, mindset. Right? It's the mindset that they have. You know, the ones that are, fl- that, are, that are talking so much about floundering right now is, of course, retailers. Right. right. The, 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 the people calling it the retail apocalypse, you know, as, as Sears. And I mean, it's hard to believe that Sears or Kmart will be around even a year from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Macy's is getting, you know, cutting down what, a 20, 25% of its stores. Uh, malls are dying. I just read a statistic that of like 1600 malls, they expect there to be only 500 that survive and only two or two or 250 that thrive to, to, to use the same term you just did. And, and because they don't get it, they think their job is to just merchandise what's already been, uh, been produced. And they don't realize that the only differentiator they have versus buying online is the physical place. Mm-hmm. And in that physical place, you can create an experience. You can get your customers to spend time with you. And the, more t- and the only way to get customers to spend more time with you is with an experience. And the more time they spend, then the more money they're going to spend as a result. Well, and the Starbucks experience, mm-hmm. uh, the American Girl Cafe, oh, yes. are, are perfect examples of people spending way more money right. and time for something they used to get somewhere else right. with a far more vanilla flavor, if you will. Right. Yeah, you could, you, could add in, uh, you could add in Apple. Apple you know, is the number one retailer in the world now with the great retail experience. But all three of those companies we just named, manufacturers not retailers. Yeah. Right. Manu- that's the key is that manufacturers come from outside of the industry. They recognize, look, if we're going to go direct to our consumers, we've got to give them a reason to come to us. What's that reason going to be? We've got to create a great experience mm-hmm. because retailers, they think people are just going to naturally come by anyway. And right. We just got to, you know, say, how can I help you today? And <laughs> trying to get them to buy stuff. So Joe, when I was reading the experience economy, I- I'm, I'm identifying with so much of it. And then I think it was chapter 11, no, nine. There's only 10. It was chapter nine. Chapter nine. <laughs> chapter I know, nine. I know where you're going. It's chapter nine. Chapter nine. And all of a sudden you introduced me to the transformation economy right. and you had me at hello there. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, wow, because you know, a lot of the folks listening to this podcast, transformation is, is what they seek. It's what, it's what's drawing them in life. So, Introduce us to the transformation economy. Yeah, to, to some degree, the first eight chapters are a Trojan horse for those last two. Okay. <laughs> to get you to think about transformations. And it comes from the same DNA, right? Can experiences be commoditized like goods and services? Absolutely. 
The antidote to commoditization is customization. What happens when you customize an experience? What happens when you design an experience that's so appropriate for this particular person, exactly the experience that, that, that they're, they're seeking right now, uh, then uh, you can't help but change it into what we often call a life-transforming experience, an experience that changes us in some way. And that is a transformation. A transformation is when you use experiences as the raw material to guide people to change, to help them achieve an aspiration. Okay. And as I was reading that, one of the things that really captured me, you, you used a word a, a moment ago about worldview. Yep. And all of a sudden, you're talking about people in the transformation economy are evaluating their providers differently. They're actually wanting to know what is it they believe. Why, why is that important? Because the, everything we buy, uh, particularly experiences, but you can go down to good services and commodities, uh, everything we buy in that regard becomes part of us, becomes part of who we are. Um, experiences in particular, because they're the first economic offering of these five, right? There's five and five only economic offerings, commodities, goods, services, experiences, and transformations. Of the first three, all of them happen outside of us, hmm. right? The closest they get is services on you, like getting a massage or getting your hair cut, right? But they're outside of us. Uh, experiences happen inside of us. They're our reaction to the events that are staged in front of us. So the, so, and, as, and then as the saying goes, we're all product of our experiences. Mm-hmm. The experience we have change us. And that's why, so transformations reach inside. They actually change us in some way. And that, uh, that affects who we are. And therefore, you're going to want to buy from those that align with your, with your worldview. And so we do talk about in Chapter 10 about worldview segmentation. You know, that people will do it. And of course, you, you see that now all the time. You didn't see that much in the 1990s when we were thinking about it. But, we, but it is, so, so that was perhaps at our most futurist, right? That we say, this is coming. You know, you can see some signs, but this is coming. And now you can, you can see it here. You know, just uh, today, reading the articles about the LPGA major tournament happening at a Trump golf course. You know, and people are protesting, how can women play at a Trump golf course and that sort of thing? And that's worldview segmentation. Yes, yes. Okay, then, then you follow the experience economy with the next book, Authenticity. Yep. And, and you and, and Jim talk about <coughs> authenticity a little bit differently. Yeah. You, know, you make a distinction, as I recall, between well, authenticity is, looks different for an individual than it does a corporation, correct? Yep, yep absolutely. Unpack that for us a little. <laughs> yeah, and, and, some people are scratching their head. Right. It is amazing how many people, though, read the book or at least tell us they read the book and how much they got out of it. And they don't get this point, although it comes in like chapter four. <laughs> and the point we make about a difference between corporations and and individuals is that one of the things we did when we wrote the book is we read all these philosophers. Right. We read uh, um, uh, Lionel Trilly. Uh, we read Jean-Paul Sartre, we read Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, we read Charles Taylor, we read Martin Heidegger. Well, nobody can read Martin Heidegger, but <laughs> you know, we read this to try and interpret what this was. And one of the things we discovered is that philosophers rarely ever define what authenticity is. They define what it isn't. Mm. Right? We, they say, you know, this, this is inauthentic, don't do that or, or don't be that. 
And, and so what we did, we call that negatively defining authenticity, right? That's what they, they negatively define authenticity. And we, we looked at it, we said, well, there's basically three basic principles that they talk about. And we call it 3Ms, right? So this is the 3M model of negatively defining authenticity. And the first M is man, right? Something is authentic if it is not of man. Uh, if, if, it's, if you do something because you're expected to do it under societal rules, right, then that's inauthentic. Mm-hmm. It, it goes back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau's idea of the noble savage that throws off the dictums of society, runs off to the woods, and is his own man, right? Then the second way they negatively define it is something is, uh, is uh, authentic, but it's not of machine. You know, the, the technology is dehumanizing. It's the height of inauthenticity. You think about Charlie Chaplin's uh, a film, Modern Times, right? And how technology is so dehumanizing, mass production, being a cog in the wheel, losing your humanity, Henry Ford saying, I want you to check your brain in at the door. I just want your hands, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, so that's the second way. Then the third way they negatively define authenticity is something is authentic if it's not of money. You know, we have that phrase selling out. If we do something just for money rather than because of who we are and, 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 in uh, our own identity, well, then that is inauthentic. So if you look at those, right, not of, not of man, not of machine, not of money, that defines every single corporation. <laughs> corporations are, by definition, incorporated by society. They follow government rules to be incorporated. Uh, they're, by definition, use the height of technology today, right? There isn't a single company out there that, that isn't using technology in the design, the manufacture, the distribution, or the marketing of its offerings and, and basically all four of them. And then finally of money by definition, right? An economic offering is when you sell something for money. By definition, it is inauthentic. So what we basically say is that all companies, all business, all economic offerings in particular are inauthentic, right? To, to use the big philosophical word ontologically, right? In their being, they're inauthentic. But phenomenologically, how we experience them we can, in fact, experience them as authentic, as I'm, I'm sure you do yourself, right? There, what, what, what to you, Kevin, is an, an offering or a company that you think of as, as authentic? Oh, wow. Um, ah, you didn't know you'd be asked a question, did you? Yeah. No, uh, well, you know, I think of Apple as incredibly right. authentic. Yeah. And yeah. I, why, why is that? Well, I think of one of the things that comes to mind is what Simon Sinek points out about them in his TED talk, mm-hmm. you know, about why, and, and that Apple just operates differently. Right. Or and, different as Steve Jobs would say. Yeah. Yeah. Different. <laughs> Think different. Uh, and just everything they do, I'm sorry, you're an IBM or by way, but it's true Excellent. blue. Yep. Yep. IBM, but it's true blue to Apple. Right. It's consistent. It's what I expect. Right, right. I, I, in fact, I'm such an IBMer that it took me years to get an iPhone, but I eventually did. And I, and I tweeted out when I got the iPhone is that, okay, uh, Apple is no longer cool. It's no longer authentic because I have an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I still, I still got my Lenovo ThinkPad PC, you know, with the little red button in it. I tried a Mac once and I couldn't stand it. I mean, literally, I just couldn't stand it. But anyway. Uh, Apple, you know, we talk about five genres of authenticity. I won't get into it, but Apple we, is a paragon of original authenticity, that everything they do is original, the yeah. original design and all of that. So if you think about these three M's, though, right, the, the man, right, Apple is a huge corporation, right, biggest market value in the world, uh, incorporated in the United States. 
that uses to a gnat's eyelash all of the tax laws, right, to get their intellectual capital over in Ireland, to make money over there, right, parking it over there and all that. They, they, they are of man in, in that sense, right, of technology. Well, Apple is the height of technology. And then of money, right, they're the height of money, right? They make the highest retail sales per square foot of any retailer, the highest uh, sales of, uh, of phones and so forth, the most uh, profits by any company in the world, right? It's all for money. And yeah, so ontologically, absolutely fake, iPhones fake, iMacs fake, et cetera. But phenomenologically, absolutely, right? I too, we perceive them as uh, the company and its offerings, we perceive, and their places, we perceive them as authentic. Okay. But not everybody, I want to point out. Like, agreed. Right? And, you know, that, that's including like Samsung employees, let's say. <laughs> but uh, the authenticity is personally determined, right? And that's why I love people. Who do you view as authentic? You, off, you often get Apple. You all the time get Harley Davidson. Oh, yeah. And you get, you know, you get uh, Whole Foods or, you know, and you'll get uh, f- uh, farmer's markets and stuff like that. Um, but, but, Somebody else can have, because of who they are, their identity, because of experiences they've had, would look at the same company or look at the same offering, be in the same place and have two different experiences. Say, no, 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 that's inauthentic, right? And, and who's right? They both are. They both are, right? Exactly. They're both right. right? Yeah. They get to determine for themselves what is authentic to themselves. Yeah. Right? Authenticity, uh, my partner Jim Gilmore and I define it as conformance to self-image. Right? It's like, it's like a, a, you, you see an offering or you're in a place and you say, that's me. That's who I am. And you get this sympathetic vibration that goes back and forth, right? That's when you say, okay, that's authentic. Okay. Well, let, let's, we've talked about the, the experience economy, the transformation economy, authentic. A little bit mass customization. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I, I want to jump a moment and, and get into this purpose. Uh, have some conversations around purpose. And, and you used the word humanizing. And you know, mm-hmm. for me, from where I sit and what I see, Jim, I see a real humanizing of the workplace going on. Uh, and, and all of so what's led to purpose becoming more mainstream in business and more part of the common parlance of business conferences and business executives now? Well, it, it, it is related to, uh, to authenticity. Right. We actually, in the book, talk about, uh, we sort of deconstruct authenticity with uh, 10 uh, different elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and five of them on, on one of the two key standards of authenticity, being true to self. Five of them on um, uh, the second key standard of authenticity, on being what you say you are to others. Right? And being true to self, uh, the, the, and it's the fir- very first one, and it's, it gets back to Simon Sinek again, it's about why. Mm-hmm. Why do you exist in, in in business? What is your purpose? Right, and and so so on the company side, um, people really need to def- companies really need to define what their purpose is, and be able to use that to align uh, with all of their employees, align with their customers, right? Because that's going to happen. But it is it is it is part and parcel, or even even on top of this search for authenticity. That, that because we shift into an experience economy it, it, and life becomes more and more of a paid-for experience, people increasingly question what is real and what is not. And increasingly, they don't want the fake from some phony. They mm-hmm. want the real from the genuine. 
And, and, and then that conformance to self-image is that if they have a purpose, if they are seeking meaning out there, they're going to want that to match uh, what they see in the companies they, they, they buy from, in the places they buy at, in the offerings that they buy. Okay. I want, want to ask you to unpack that sentence again. Say it again because I've heard <laughs> it before. They want, they, people want to distinguish the fake from the phony and the authentic from the genuine. Well, they, they, well, what is it? they want to, they want, they don't longer want to buy the fake from some phony. Yeah, right? okay. It really is the new consumer sensibility. It's the primary buying criterion by which people choose to choose who to buy from and what to buy. Even if they don't articulate it that way, right? Exactly. They may not articulate it, but they, in their head, there's sort of this, you know, this, this, this internal brain calculation that's going on. Uh, and, uh, and so they, they are seeking things out that identify that they identify with. And it's really becoming part of the milieu, part of the gestalt, part of, you know, some other big foreign words we could, we could mention. Uh, so they're seeking that real from the genuine, right? They want real offerings from genuine uh, companies, okay. at least in terms of how they perceive it. Okay. It is all perception again. It's phenomenological. It's perception. It's not reality. <laughs> it vary from person to person. Absolutely. So who is a paragon of purpose in business that you admire? Um, I do think of, uh, you know, the first company that came to mind was Whole Foods. Uh, you go into a Whole Foods company, their values are, are in huge letters, yeah. right? Up, uh, up there. Uh, they try and live those values. Uh, yes, they, they, their offerings cost a lot of money. Uh, and, uh, they, they gear towards a higher, uh, you know, higher level socioeconomic status in, in doing that. But they were the first to bring organic produce to the entire country, as opposed to being very much of a niche thing. They introduced people to it, uh, and um, and the and the notion that uh, that uh, Mackie has as CEO of, of as of conscious capitalism, I think, is a very is a very good thing. Um, the other the other company that comes that came immediately to mind. Now I can't remember what it was <laughs> uh, with purpose. Was, oh, uh, Zappos. Yeah. Uh, you know, delivering happiness, right? And I love, one of the things I love is that they really do want to deliver happiness on their web, in their offerings, when they're received it, when they're worn, and then especially over the phone. And they recognize that in order to deliver happiness, in order to create an experience over the phone, what they do something that almost no other call centers do, which they don't measure average hold time. Yeah. Right? They, they don't measure uh, how another, yeah, they don't measure how little time that that the reps spend with customers, right? Zappo says you take as much time as you need because you got to deliver happiness, baby. And they actually, at the end of the, every day, they celebrate the rep that got to spend the most time with a customer that day, right? The record being, I think it's ten hours and twenty six minutes right? in, in in one day, right? That is fulfilling their purpose. That is forget about the financial measurements. That is fulfilling our our, our purpose. Mm -hmm. All right, so. Going back to you. Ooh, 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 wait, wait, wait. Can I give one more example? Yeah, yeah, one more. <laughs> I'll give one more example of a company I mention all the time is uh, Heartland Health in St. Joseph, Missouri. Okay. That they decided to theme their entire uh, experience of in, in, in the hospital and the, the associate offices around a three-word theme of live life well. Hmm. That they want their patients to live life well. They want the family members of those patients to live life well. They want the community, and St. Joseph is not a big, thriving community, to live life well. They want their employees to yeah. live life well. 
Uh, so much so that they, you know, that it really did become not just the theme of the experience, but to take it up a level or two uh, in levels of purpose. It really is the meaningful purpose of the company. So they changed the name to Mosaic, not healthcare, life care, right? We're now about life care. Uh, and they really do want people to, to uh, all their patients, family members, community, et cetera, employees to live life well. And that really, they, so they want all their employees to ascend to this proposition. This is what we're about. We're about living life well. Love it. I love it. I, I was not familiar with that, uh, the story. Uh, back to your purpose. You said developing frameworks. Yep. Well, I think, is a, is there a new framework developing or that you've been working on around purpose? Uh, always. <laughs> I'm always developing new frameworks. around. But yes, uh, one unpublished I have, framework I have around purpose uh, is around levels of purpose. Because when, you know, when, I, when I first started really thinking about purpose with authenticity, and then I'm also working on a whole new set of frameworks with a colleague by the name of Kim Korn, who's my co-author in Infinite Possibility, I'm helping him with his ideas on how companies can thrive forever. And as we get more and more into purpose, then I began to realize that, that these things do, in fact, relate. When you take a, a Heartland Health that, that takes what, we, what we, we say is a theme, but then recognize it's really a purpose, I say, well, there's something going on here. So, so I do have a new framework around levels of in purpose. Uh, and and the, at the bottom level, it's sort of a concentric circles, right? So at the smallest circle uh, inside of it uh, is, is basically an acting intention, right? We, we talk about in the experience comment. We haven't talked about it here, Kevin, but we talk about how um, uh, work is theater. You know, mm -hmm. that, that when you stage an experience, your work is theater. Therefore, you need to understand how to act. And one of the key principles in acting, you know, if you go to any acting uh, um, workshop, you know, you study acting anyway, you're going to learn about intention. Intent, your acting intention is, is, is how you're doing what you do, right? And it gets back to, okay, what am I trying, trying to do? Why am I doing it? So, you, you know, so you basically, you perform blank in order to blank. And that in order to is your intention. It's, it's uh, what you do is, is what, but how you go about doing it can turn it into an engaging experience. So the acting intention then to go to the next level is your experience theme. What is the theme of this experience? And the theme is the organizing principle for the entire experience. And obviously the acting intention has to fit in with, with the theme. You know, and it doesn't have to be as in your face as a theme restaurant. It doesn't have to be fantasy like Disney, but like live life well, it is the organizing principle of everything you do. It's how you decide what's in and what's out. And that then has to fit under your strategic intention. And that we talk about in Chapter 10 of the Experience Economy. We cite uh, uh, Gary Hamill and C.K. Prahalad, who did a, you know, a lot of wonderful work on, on strategic intention. So this is what difference are you trying to be in the world, right? You as a company, this, this is the why often that uh, Simon Sinek is, is talking about. But, but, it's, but it's like directionally, where, where are we going? What are we trying to do? And then right above that then is, in fact, the meaningful purpose, right? What is the meaningful purpose of the organization? What is the proposition to which everybody should ascend in order to work here? Because that aligns everybody together. And, and, and as Kim always points out, you don't need command and control uh, management if you have a purpose that aligns people together because they'll know what to do. And, and then what you find is that over time, it becomes a two-edged sword, right? All, that's a beautiful thing about purpose and themes are two-edged swords. They allow you to decide what's in and what's out, who's in and who's out. Because now when you hire people, you want to make sure they ascend to that proposition of that purpose before they start. 
people, you're not necessarily going to fire somebody because they don't, they'll fire themselves, right? They'll recognize over time. Yeah, we, you know, this, I don't really belong. I don't fit in. And that's fine. You know, it, it's not for everybody. And, and so it's just huge. You, and you can't possibly thrive as a company for very long without having this, this alignment mechanism, this purpose uh, of it. And then the last level around all of that that I put there, that's the worldview. Right, again, it gets back to the worldview segmentation that we, we talked about is what is your worldview? Because your purpose needs to fit in with your view of the world. Hmm. Fascinating. Now, when I saw this word first time out of uh, infinite possibilities, thrive forever. Mm-hmm. Why thrive? I, I love the word thrive. I love thrive and flourish. Those are two of my favorite yep. words when we're talking about this. So why thrive? How did you all land on that word? Right, interesting. Interesting to say. I got a. Um, I won't. I won't give the full story, but I have this wonderful connection to my former high school philosophy teacher, <laughs> who I met, you know, like twenty years later, and we've become good friends in that. And and he just recently changed the focus of his business. He's a coach, right, with business, and he just changed the focus of his business to uh, Stan Houston is, is his name to focus on Christian entrepreneurs. Hmm. And so now you know, just he just went through a you know life changing thing with cancer and that sort of thing. Everything's going well, and he just decided you know this is what I'm really called to do. Right, this is now his purpose. He wants to help people Christians to discover that they're entrepreneurs and to help those entrepreneurs then have successful businesses. And just this the three or four days ago, I think it was a Sunday night, he sent me an email and said. How would you define flourish? <laughs> you know, so it's the second time I've heard that word. They they very much do go together. So so the so the question that that Kim Corn and I are asking there is how can companies thrive? How can they be vital? How in particular you juxtapose it with what's the opposite? Well, the opposite is 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 fall into mediocrity and eventually fail. Right. If you do not set yourself on a trajectory that thrives forever, then eventually you're just going to fall down into mediocrity. And then maybe a hero comes along and saves the day. Right. Maybe the bluebird of happiness lands on top of your business. But most likely outcome is you're going to fail. Yeah. You know, with, with the experience economy, I threaten people with commoditization. Right. Now with this new work, I threaten people with death. <laughs> right. Your company's going to die. Yeah. You know, it's good. That's what we see with retailers, retailers, right? They are not thriving in any way. They are on the path to failure. And, and so you need to institute a new way of managing what Kim calls regenerative managing uh, so that you in fact can thrive forever. So do you see a book coming that unpacks this? Uh... Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, tentative title is simply thrive, right? right? Thrive. Uh, but absolutely, what we've done is we've looked at the world of business. We looked at the enterprise of a company and asked the questions very simply, who, what, where, when, why, and how, uh, plus in what way, right? Those journalistic questions allows us to figure out what are the key elements of every enterprise and get down to the uh, seven principles, the seven well, imperatives, really, that they have to follow. And one of those imperatives, in fact, is, of course, to infuse meaning, right? You need to infuse meaning in your people. And that's where you have to have that, that meaningful purpose. If you don't infuse meaning, then you're not going to be engaged, right? The employees are not going to be engaged. They're going to be working not for you, 
at worst, I mean, at best, if they're not engaged, they're, they're just sort of going along and not in your way. But at worst, they're actively working against you as a company, right? They're employees that do that, that aren't engaged. And the way to do it is to infuse that meaning within them. Let's shift gears a moment and talk personally about you, Joe. All right. Uh, who, who's a, a, a hero in your journey of purpose? <laughs> the, I always say Stan Davis. Stan Davis is my intellectual idol. Okay. Uh, uh, he, uh, he coined the term mass customization in his 1987 book, Future Perfect, uh, which is still as meaningful today as it was, you know, uh, 30 years ago now that he wrote it. Uh, I read that as a strategic planner at IBM and it's like the, the heavens opened up and the angels sang, right? This is what I was seeing. This is what we need to do. And why he was one chapter in his book. I said, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to do a full book on it, right? That's what I wanted to do. And uh, my publisher got Stan to uh, write the forward to it. Uh, and then eventually, uh, uh, you know, we've met, became friends in that. And, and, uh, and, the, and then, in fact, my book, Infinite Possibility, was inspired by him. It was a, a second chapter, of, you know, it, right at the one right before Mass Customizing, inspired me to think about digital technology in a new way that led to Infinite Possibility about uh, creating um, how you create experiences that fuse the real and, and the virtual. And so, you know, if I ever run out of ideas, I'm going to go back to, to Future Perfect and say, okay, what's another chapter in here? There's got to be something here I could do. So, uh, so he's my, you know, he, he's it, man. He's, I just love, love, love his thinking. What's been a defining moment in your journey to purpose, personally? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the, you know, you, so you, you start with discover, you know, discovering Stan's concept of mass customization. You go to being at MIT for a year, uh, uh, sponsored by IBM. That's the way to get, to get a master's degree, right? <laughs> so you get a company to pay full boat. Uh, writing the thesis on it and then turning that, yes, into a book as my intention was. My, my colleagues at, at MIT thought I was crazy, you know, trying to write a book while, I, while I'm here. Uh, but I was able to do that. Uh, and then leaving IBM. And I'll mention, I, the first time I got to meet Stan was in late 93. After the book came out, I delivered a, we had dinner, I delivered a sign, uh, uh, a copy to him, had a great conversation. And at the end of the meal, he gets out this piece of paper, writes something on it, turns it over and slides it across the table. <laughs> I said, you want me to read this now or later? And he said, whatever you want. So I opened it up and it says, you will leave IBM within a year. <laughs> And I said, oh, you're crazy. I love IBM. My father accused me of being brainwashed. I bleed blue. I love this company. You know, and six months later, I called him and said, you're right. Wow. <laughs> so, so leaving IBM was, a, was a, probably the defining moment, right? And, and this was uh, mid-1993. I, di I didn't want to leave. I admit that. But they basically got rid of the group. I was in this management research group within the IBM consulting group. And they had to, you know, change their structure. They got rid of it. They wanted me to be, to be a line consultant, and which I really didn't want to do. Uh, and my wife also worked for the IBM Consulting Group, and she didn't want to. She wanted to leave because she'd have to go back full time after the birth of our, our, our two daughters. Uh, and and the one defining thing was that I, um, I, I, we had submitted an article. Two professors that I worked with at IBM had submitted an article to the Harvard Business Review. And I knew, okay, if I get that article, right, the phone will ring. People will come. Uh, and, 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 I'll, and, I'll have, and I'll have a business. And if I don't, you know, not so sure. 
So my wife and I prayed about it and prayed about it. And, and we got down to the night before the final last day and still hadn't heard anything. And we said, okay, let's do it. All right, let's, we both signed our papers the next morning. She's in, you know, we, we, we live in Richville, Connecticut. She drives uh, a half hour uh, east. I drive an hour west, you know, we're an hour and a half apart during the day. Uh, but we both sign our papers. And because I told her, I says, uh, let's try and make it on my own. If I can, I can always get another job. And, uh, and we got six months salary from IBM, both of us, you know, to, to help make it happen. Uh, so I signed the papers. That afternoon, I get a call from the Harvard Business Review editor saying, we want to publish your article. And really quickly, right? We got a hole in our September issue. Let's put this in there. You know, so my whole last two weeks were working on this article, you know. So, uh, so God answered that prayer right after we, <laughs> we did what he wanted to do. Okay, so you, you've just mentioned prayer. You've just mentioned God. Well, let's talk about this. This is the Higher Purpose podcast. And when I read, there were two things in the experience economy that, that really helped me understand you as a person a little more. One of those was the dedication, which yep. was a very unique dedication. We were talking about that. I, I won't, I'll let you tell that. And then the second was you interjected Jesus into the business book and you said, some of you are probably having a cow <laughs> right now. <laughs> tell it, what, what was the dedication? Uh, the, the dedication was to the author and perfecter of our faith, right? Which, uh, you know, direct quote, uh, out of the, uh, the new Testament referring to uh, Jesus, of course. And, and my partner, Jim Gilmore, and I also a Christian, as we got done with the book and particularly the, the encore, as we call it, the afterward to the experience economy talks about what's after transformations. And we say, Nope, nothing, <laughs> right? In terms of economics, that there are five and five only economic offerings. Got good reasons for that in there. Uh, yeah, but, and, but one of the key reasons is because uh, transformations can't be commoditized in the same way. Because with transformations, the customer is the product, mm. right? The person is the product. Humans have inherent worth, right? Endowed by God, by the creator, we have inherent worth. We cannot be commoditized. Uh, and, and that's what transformations are, is they're changing the human being, or and it can be with businesses as well. And then the, the heuristic about customization, what happens when you customize a transformation? When you customize a transformation, uh, it, uh, it, you, you, it's thinking about, well, what are the possibilities? You know, you just have more and more aspirations or all different kinds of transformations. Or they couldn't think of, the only thing I can think of is, well, okay, you get to the level where you, where you perfect uh, the human being. Right. And so there is no need more of transformation. And well, obviously, that's not the province of man. That's the province of God. And so we recognize there, there's none. And, and we talk about about that. And, uh, and and that's when we sort of recognize that, hey, you know, originally we we're going to dedicate this to our to our wives. I don't remember if we've told them that. So hopefully they're not listening. At the moment. Uh, we're going to dedicate it to our wives. So we got through that. And we said, no, this is this, this is a dedication. Right. Author. It's about writing. Uh, it's about, um, you know, the depicting of experiences is about story. It's all about that. And then of course, then that perfecter, only he is the perfecter. That's why there is no offerings after, after transformations. Mm-hmm. Well, Jim, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for, for joining in. If there's Thanks, people- Thanks Carl. <laughs> <laughs> I say that because that's the second time you called me Jim. Oh, <laughs> I am so sorry. I did say that's that. all right. I, it happens. It, it happens more often. I mean, we haven't met. This is the first time you've ever seen me. 
Uh, we both get that a lot where somebody will call us by the you They both begin with J, so it's easy. Well, to do. and why did you write a book? Why did you pick a guy with Jim as the co-author? You know, if it had been Frank, yeah. it, that wouldn't, have been. <laughs> it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, Joe. Uh, Joe, if people want to get more of you, how do they do that? <laughs> I don't know if everybody's ever said that they wanted more of me, but <laughs> <laughs> they can uh, they can go to strategichorizons.com. Right, that's the name of our company, Strategic Horizons with an S dot com. Uh, there they can learn all about me and about Jim as well. Uh, they can learn about our ideas and that we I have we have a, a, a thoughts page, you know, basically a set of blogs that we put on there about what we're thinking about and that uh, that they can can look at. Uh, we also have an annual event uh, every year called Think About. And we move it around various different places. It's September 27th, 28th this year, if I remember correctly. Uh, and uh, it's in Cleveland where the first Think About happened uh, 20 years ago. So this is our 20th event. At the first one, we had Stan Davis there, uh, which was wonderful. Uh, and given our 20th event, we actually decided this would be the last event that we do. Hmm. The last public Think About is going to be this year. So uh, it's, and everybody there loves the experience economy. Uh, everybody there is, is, a, is just a stupendous person. We say we don't have any... Uh, we don't have an audience. We have participants. The people make the event. It's the place where we get to practice what we preach. Uh, and, uh, and so we get to uh, um, stage this event, but it very much is incredibly interactive. Everybody walks away with not one, not two, but at least 10 or more ideas about what they can do uh, in their business. Uh, and so it's just a wonderful thing. And, uh, and then la last thing I mentioned, we also have a uh, experience economy expert certification course. Uh, we met because of one of our uh, certified experts. Uh, you mentioned Mark Borst, uh, certified expert number 116, if I, if I remember. Yes. Uh, and um, uh, so we have now over 250 certified experience economy experts around the world. About half of them in our public course, about half of them in private courses that we do for individual companies that want to create a center of expertise around experiences net. But it's a four-and-a-half-day immersion in the experience economy. You truly do become an expert at the end of it. We walk through the book. We, we teach you uh, exercises that you can use with others. We answer every and all questions that you have, uh, and we give you a set of materials that you can then go out and, and teach others about it and use it in your business with your clients, as the case may be. All right. Well, Joe, I am planning to attend one of those in the future. Super, super. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks so much for joining us today. Absolute pleasure. Enjoyed the discussion. We covered a lot of ground in our conversation today with Joe. Something for everyone, I believe. I love Joe's insights on the transformation economy and how in the transformation economy, the person is the product. I'm pretty sure you're seeking some sort of personal transformation and chances are good that you're involved in helping others on the path to transformation. That is the ultimate experience. Joe really helped me with understanding on this about the journey. Peter Drucker, as you may recall, extolled the importance of knowing what business you are in. He said that's one of the most important questions to answer. I've realized I am in the transformation business. I want to see you flourishing instead of floundering. And we even got to talk with you about the concept of flourishing. Wasn't that great? Purpose is pivotal. 
If your business zeroes in on your purpose, you get clarity. And I love the example of Mosaic Life Care in Missouri and how the pursuit of purpose transformed their approach to health care and it helped them embrace this whole new mantra, live life well. That's my hope for you, that you live life well. Hey, up next on the Higher Purpose podcast is a really super treat. We're going to sit down with Tom Winninger. This is the one guy who has done more to help me understand gifting in life. And we're going to go deeper into your true DNA. That's his new book that's about to hit the shelves, but you're going to get to hear it first and an opportunity to get it before it goes public. Before you go, give this a listen. Remember, you were meant for more. Why settle for less? If you feel like you don't have purpose at work or you want to clarify your purpose at work, we have a free five-day email course you can take with daily challenges and action steps to help bring the meaning you are meant to have in your everyday life. Go to kevinmonroe.com slash workpurpose.